So tonight, as we go forward in 1 Chronicles, we are going to be picking it up in chapter 8 of 1 Chronicles. And we've turned the corner on a lot of names. We still have more names. There's names throughout the entire book, actually. But we've cleared the chapters with the most names that you get in Chronicles. As I said before, Chronicles, the context of it is the captives are coming back from the Babylonian captivity, and they're genealogies, or we might say their Ancestry.com, was critical in understanding their history of their past, the potential of really who they were in their present, and the future that God had for them. And so we keep that in mind as we read through these names, because they're all people that matter. They're in the Word of God, and there's an intentional purpose with all of them. And so tonight, as we come to chapter 8, we go forward with the family tree of King Saul, and it'll start with King Saul in chapter 8, and when we wrap up chapter 9 later on, it'll go back to King Saul, and there's plenty of good stuff for us to look at tonight in application, so we pick it up in verse 1. Now, Benjamin begot Bela, his firstborn, Ashbel the second, Ahara the third, Noha the fourth, and Rapha the fifth. The sons of Bela were Adar, Gera, Abahub, Abishua, Naaman, Ahoa, Gera, Shephufan, and Huram. These are the sons of Ehud, who were the heads of the father's house of the inhabitants of Geba, who forced them to move to Manathoth. Naaman, Ahijah, and Gera, who forced them to move. He begot Uzzah and Ahud. Also, Shaharim had children in the country of Moab, that's modern Jordan, after he had sent away Husham and Bara, his wives. By Hodesh, his wife, he begot Jobad, Zibiah, Mesha, Malcolm, Jeuz, Sakiah, Mirmah. These were his sons, heads of their father's houses. By Husham, he begot Abitub and Eliphal. The sons of Eliphal were Eber, Misham, and Shemed, who built Ano and Lod with, the t- uh, with its towns. And Bariah and Shema, who were heads of their father's house, of the inhabitants of Hashalon, who drove out the inhabitants of Gath, Ahio, Shashak, Jeremoth, Zebediah, Arad, Eder, Michael, Isfa, Joha were the sons of Bariah. Zebediah, Meshulam, Hiskai, Heber, Ish, Iriah, Jizliah, and Jobad were the sons of Elphal, Jachim, Zekiri, Zabdi, Elinai, Zelithai, Eliel, Adiah, Bariah, and Shimrath were the sons of Shimiel. Excuse me, the sons of Shimei. Ispan, Eber, Eliel, Abdon, Zikri, Hanan, Hananiah, Alam, Elam, Antahajah, Iphadiah, Penuel were the sons of Shashak. Shamshariah, Shehariah, Athaliah, Jareshiah, Elijah, and Zikri were the sons of Joram. These were the heads of the fathers' houses by their generations. Chief men, these dwelt in Jerusalem. Now, as we go forward in these two chapters tonight, 8 and 9, the emphasis is on events in Jerusalem. Residency in Jerusalem, people who lived in Jerusalem, events surrounding Jerusalem. So now, again, as the cap captives came back from the Babylonian captivity, they were going back to their central place, what was left of their central place of worship, their capital city, Jerusalem. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem on the third time around, when he took away people, 
They destroyed the temple, tore down the walls, and just leveled it. And so for 70 years, that's how Jerusalem lay. And then now these captives are coming back, and they're going to rebuild things and go forward in the land. Now, as we look at this text, I draw your attention to verses 6, and then later on, uh, farther down at verse 13, these phrases that come up where it says that they were, that they were, that they, these Benjamites forced out other Benjamites. They forced them to move. And it says it again in verse 7, who were forced, who forced them to move. So it explains the people who were forcing it, and that's what they did. And then later on in verse 13, you see that those who drove out the inhabitants. And so this gets my attention because we're going through Chronicles and we're looking for unique things or significant things or little applications that pop up. And immediately, maybe you saw it when we're reading it, you go like, well, wait a second, because we got all these names. But in this little cluster of scriptures, these 28 verses, we're told that these guys forced these people to move. Now, this word forced has the idea of being forced into exile. They literally drove them out. The word can be translated like a, uh, just exile. It's like they, were, they just had nowhere to go. It was, it was a force upon them. So the first one, forced out, like they just drove them out. Like, you go just, you're going to exile. You just go somewhere else. You can't be here. But the other one in verse 13, where it says they drove them out, that's even it's different. They're two different words. And this one is like to suddenly be put to, be put to flight, to be taken captive. So one is like, hey, you just beat it, go into exile, you're not welcome here. And the other one is like more of urgency, like they're driven out more quickly. So they're similar, but they are different. In fact, these words are only used a couple times in the entire Bible, and they are used here describing these events. And so this is something I think we can all relate to in the human experience, because in our human experience, it's impossible to get from here to there, to the age of 80, and not be forced out of somewhere. Your parents might force you out of the home, Right? You might be forced out of a job at work because someone's jealous of you and envious of you and they undermine you. Like Daniel in the book of Daniel where the other people in the palace were envious of Daniel and they tried to force him out. We know in the human experience, people get forced out all the time. You can be part of a little league team and be one of assistant coaches and of nine-year-olds and some dad doesn't like you and they think they should be the t-ball coach or the pitching coach and they try and force you out. In the human experience, we can't protect our children from circumstances where they might be forced out. You might really enjoy what's going on in your life. You might enjoy your neighborhood and your life, and something could force you out. It's a human experience. Sometimes maybe you work at Starbucks, and this manager is jealous of that manager, that shift lead, and they're going to they're force them out. They can't make them leave, but they can make it miserable for them to stay. We know this is the human experience and how it goes. So really, when we ask ourselves in Jesus' name, if we're forced out, because it's only a matter of time of when you'll be forced out, how did the Lord Jesus respond to it? How does the church respond to it? And how do we respond to it? Because there are times where people will try and force us out. They can't fire us, but they'll squeeze us out. They'll exclude us. They'll force us out. They'll, They'll drive us out suddenly even sometimes. Well, first of all, Jesus, throughout his ministry, you saw situations, we see situations where there was difficult confrontations, and he was forced out. How about in his hometown in Nazareth? When he read the Isaiah text, he said, this day, this is fulfilled in your sight. And they, the mob grabbed him and took him to the edge of the city. They literally were forcing him out, and they're going to throw him over a cliff. I mean, you can't get much more forced out than that. The community was rejecting his person, his witness, and his testimony, and they were going to 
throw him off the cliff. That's forced out. But as you know, he walked through the midst and went on to the next thing. We read in the, Gospels, uh, the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 12 where Jesus had conflict with the Pharisees, the religious leaders, over the Sabbath and the healing on the Sabbath. And it says right there, as it's introduced to us in Matthew's Gospel, that they began to plot to kill him. And we're told that he went on from that place and continued ministry in another place. He just moved on. Interestingly enough, in the book of Acts, we have a very profound situation where this happens where there in Acts chapter 8, when Saul of Tarsus, who was Paul the Apostle later after he's converted, is so enraged against the believers in Jerusalem, he forces them out. They are driven out. They, they leave their property, they leave their families, their, their business model, everything. They just abandon everything, and they are forced out, and they are scattered everywhere. But we also know in Acts 1.8, Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And they hadn't gone on to that yet, and once, Paul, once Saul of Tarsus started locking him up in prison and having him executed, man, they, they, they scattered. And we know that the word of the Lord went with them wherever they went. And we know that it worked together for good. And it actually put in motion the fulfillment of Acts 1.8 that Jesus described, that the book is divided by. And it's that scattering under the persecution of Saul that put phase two of the books, book of Acts in motion. We see also in the book of Acts when the apostles would be preaching and sometimes they're rejected and they're expelled from the city. What did they do? Body of Christ, WG. They just went on to the next city. That's what they did. So it really isn't who forced us out or why, but isn't that what you want to know? You just want to know. I want to know. It's human nature. When someone is maliciously going behind your back or leveraging things against you, you want to know who it is. You want to know who it is, and you want to know why. I mean, knowing why is reasonable, but you don't always need a why. Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, some people just hate you because they hate you. He says, they'll hate you because you're attractive, and they'll hate you because you're unattractive. And he used to joke about it. He said, they'll hate you because you have a lot of hair, or you're like me, you don't have any hair. People just hate people and are jealous of other people, sometimes for no reason whatsoever. They just don't like you. It's like dog beats. Some dogs just don't like each other. And some people just don't like you, and they'll try and force you out. But it's not about who is forcing you out or even why they're forcing you out. Because we know for the believer that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So it really it isn't about what we're being forced out of and who did it or why. It's really about where we're going to and what God has for us and where we're going to. See, if we focus on the who and the why, we're just going to focus on the negative and the past and things that we can't control. But if we focus on the where and the what, we're going to keep going forward. That's why it says, I forget those things are behind. One thing I do is forget those things are behind. And I press on to what lies ahead, to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So if we can let go of the past and not focus on the who and the why, but we can embrace the future that the Lord has for us, the what we're going to do and where we're going to do it, we're going to have the right attitude, we're going to have an attitude of faith, we're going to trust in the Lord, and we're going to just go from glory to glory. And we'll protect ourselves from bitterness and resentment. Bad things do happen to good people, and evil people do plot things against good people. But in the end, what John the Baptist said stands true. A man or a woman can receive nothing unless it comes from the Lord. And it's not about who forced us out or why they forced us out. 
It's about where is the Lord taking us and what's he want to do. It's always about the future with the Lord. Where are we going and what does God want to do? And that person, that woman, that man will thrive and flourish wherever they go because they're going forward with the Lord and the things of the Lord. Always forward. We need to frame it with a positive response, a positive attitude, and we need to supply Romans 8.28 that we truly believe God's in control and we can let it go. Because the only alternative beyond going forward and focusing on what is and where it's going to be is to look back on trying to figure out who it was and why they did it, and that's just spinning your wheels going backwards. And there's nothing we can do about yesterday. We have here and we have tomorrow. Here today and tomorrow. So WG, body of Christ. Just a reminder, it's always where and what the Lord has next for us, and it's an attitude of faith and trust in the Lord. Jesus didn't stop when he was forced out. He just kept moving in a new direction, and that's what God would have us to do. There's a good application on that. Now, we read on some more names. Verse 29. Now, the fathers of Gibeon, whose wife's name was Makkah, dwelt at Gibeon, and his firstborn son was Abdon, then Zur, Kish, Baal, Nadab, Gador, Ahio, Zechar, and Migloth, who begot Shimea. They also dwelt alongside their relatives in Jerusalem with their brethren. Ner begot Kish, Kish begot Saul. So that's King Saul, the first king of Israel who went bad. And Saul begot Jonathan, Malkishua, Abnadab, and Eshbaal. The son of Jonathan was Mirabaal, and Mirabaal begot Micah. The sons of Micah were Pithon, Melech, Terah, and Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Jehoiada. Jehoiada begot Alameth, Azmaveth, and Zimri, and Zimri begot Moza. Moza begot Binia and Rapha, his son, Elisah, his son, and Eziel, his son. Eziel had six sons whose names were these, Azrakim, Bokaru, Ishmael, Shariah, Obadiah, and Hanan, all these were the sons of Azel, and the sons of Eshek, his brothers, were Ulam, his firstborn, Jeus the second, and Iphelet the third. The sons of Ulam were mighty men of valor, archers. They had many sons and grandsons, 150 in all. These were all the sons of Benjamin. Now, the reason the sons of Benjamin are important is because when the when the tribes in the north were taken away by Sennacherib in 722 A.D. to just be dispersed amongst Syria and where the Kurds live now and up by Turkey, those ten tribes were taken away and some of the Levites with them and whatnot. But then, you know, in 586, when the completion of the southern kingdom being taken away, Judah happened, we, might, we need to remember that much of the, those who dwelt in Judah at that time were not just the tribe of Judah, but Benjamites. They were the neighboring tribe, and they hung out in that area. So the captives that went away into Babylon, a lot of them were from Benjamin. Thus, we see here in this text, contextually, there's more emphasis on Benjamin and the stuff that went on with them. Because as the captives were coming back, and there would have been a remnant of all the tribes coming back from Babylon, there was a, quite a bit of people that would have been coming back who were of the tribe of Benjamin. And that sheds some light on that. And, you know, again, what do we get here? We get names, we get relatives, we get skill set, and that's who they were. So we go forward now. Chapter 9, verse 1. So all Israel was recorded by genealogies, and indeed they were inscribed in the book of the kings of Israel. But Judah was carried away captive to Babylon because of their unfaithfulness. And the first inhabitants who dwelt in their possessions, in their cities, were Israelites, priests, Levites, and the Nethanimim which were just a, a class of servants. Some people think maybe the 
Nethanim were the Gibeonites from back in, you know, Samuel and all that story. We don't know. The word means servants. So low-end workers is what they were. Verse 3. So now we're going to look at dwellers in Jerusalem, the priests in Jerusalem, and the Levites in Jerusalem, and then we're going to get past these names onto some more applications. So verse 3. Now, in Jerusalem, the children of Judah dwelt, and some of the children of Benjamin, and of the children of Ephraim and Manasseh. Uthai, the son of Ahidab, the son of Omri, the son of Imri, the son of Bani, of the descendants of Perez, the son of Judah. That's all back in the book of Genesis as well. Of the Shonites, Asahiah the firstborn and his sons. Of the sons of Zerah, Jewel, their brethren, 690. Of the sons of Benjamin, Salu, the sons of Meshalom, the sons of Hodaviah, the son of Hasinuah, Ibniah, the son of Joram, Eliah, the son of Uzi, the son of Mikri, Meshalam, the son of Shephatiah, the son of Ruel, the son of Ibnahaj, and their brethren, according to their generations. 956. All these men were heads of a father's house in their father's house. So they're the more important people. Verse 10. Of the priest, Jedediah, Jehorib, and Jachin. Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Meshulam, the son of Zadok, the son of Marioth, the son of Ahitub, the officer over the house of God. So here's a job description and a title for him. Adiah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Pasher, the son of Malchajah, Masiah, the son of Adiel, the son of Jazerah, the son of Meshulam, the son of Meshilimith, the son of Emer, and their brethren, heads of their father's houses. 1,760, these were very able men for the work of the service of the house of God. So they were able to do what was entrusted to them. Verse 14. Remember, there's a distinction between priests and Levites because uh, all priests would be Levites, but not all Levites are priests because of the subdivision of the tribe of Levi. Of the Levites, Shemaiah, the son of Hashab, the son of Azarkim, the son of Hashabiah, of the sons of Merari, Bakbakar, Harish, Galal, and Mathanah, Aiah, the son of Micah, the son of Zikri, the son of Asaph, Obadiah, the son of Shimei, the son of Gaal, the son of Jedithun, and Berechiah, the son of Asa, the son of Elkanah, who lives in the villages of the Netophites. So again, really quick on these Levites and these priests. Review. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the, the patriarchs. Abraham, the father of faith. Isaac, the son of promise. Jacob, the, the son. Jacob and Esau were the sons. Esau, all the Ishmaelites go this way. Here's Jacob, four women, 12 children, 12 tribes. Levi set apart. Levi is subdivided into three elements, the Kohathites, the Marites, and um, the Gershonites. And only the Kohathites could do the priesthood. So the Marites and the Gershonites, they did all kinds of work around the tabernacle and then the temple, but they were not the priests. The Kohathites, the one-third, were the priests. And from the Kohathites, only those Kohathites from the descendants of Aaron, the brother of Moses, could be the high priest. So you see, every high priest was a priest and a Levite. Every Kohathite was a priest and a Levite. But the Gershonites and Marites were only Levites. So just get that clarity there for you so you understand that in the context of this passage. 
Now, here's where we get some really good stuff about work and people and jobs and responsibilities and all this kind of stuff. Verse 17. And the gatekeepers were Shalom, Akab, Talman, Ahiman, and their brethren. Shalom was the chief until the day, until then they had been gatekeepers for the camps of the children of Levi at the king's gate on the east side. Shalom, the son of Kor, the son of Ibiaseph, the son of Korah, and his brethren from his father's house, the Korathites, were in charge of the work of the service, gatekeepers of the tabernacle. Their fathers had been keepers of the entrance to the camp of the Lord. And Phineas, the son of Eleazar, so he's the grandson of Aaron, Phineas is, had been the officer over them in time past. The Lord was with him. Zechariah, the son of Meshelemiah, was keeper of the door of the tabernacle of meeting. All those chosen as gatekeepers were 212. They were recorded by their genealogy in their villages. David and Samuel the seer, or Samuel the prophet, who wrote the book of Samuel, had appointed them to their trusted office. And so they and their children were in charge of the gates of the house of the Lord, the house of the tabernacle by assignment. The gatekeepers were assigned to the four directions, the east, the west, the north, and the south. And their brethren in their villages had to come with them from time to time for seven days. For in this trusted office were four chief gatekeepers. They were Levites. And they had charge over the chambers and the treasuries of the house of God. And they lodged all around the house of God because they had the responsibility and they were in charge of opening it every morning. This sounds like our real world, doesn't it? Does it sound like you tomorrow morning going to work somewhere? Look at these words that pop up with these guys. They were faithful and they were diligent, but... They had responsibility. They were appointed. They trusted. They had a trusted office. So they're appointed. They had a trusted office. They had charge. They had assignments. They had. They even commuted. In some cases, they commuted, and they had everyday responsibilities that were required to be done in their service to the Lord. So truly, what's being described here for these Levites is their jobs, and they, these jobs required faithfulness and diligence. In fact, if one word really described it, it would be responsibilities. These are absolute responsibilities. And they had to be disciplined, and they had to be dependable, and they had to do their work. Now, we know that Jesus, when he fulfilled his ministry to the Father, he was always about the Father's business. He was always proactive and intentional in what he was doing. Jesus responded, but never reacted. He didn't get pulled off his like someone just didn't come in his world like an iPhone going off to distract them and pull him from what he's doing. He was always doing that thing which pleased the Father, always moving toward Jerusalem to die on the cross for us. And he stayed on target, as we'd say, or stayed on point. So even when the woman with the flow of blood grabbed his robe and was healed, he responded, but he didn't get pulled from what he was called to do. And as he would minister to her and then, you know, go to... Uh, the house of Jairus' daughter to raise her from the dead, which is also connected to that story. It wasn't ever random. It wasn't, he wasn't getting pulled out of his lane to do something that he was not being led to do in obedience to the Father's will. Jesus taught the word of God like no one else did. He performed miracles and signs and wonders to confirm he is the Messiah as promised in the Old Testament. But in everything he did, he was always moving toward the cross to die on the cross for our sins and rise from the grave for hope and justification. And in his three years of ministry, there is no wasted time. For you and me, there's lots of wasted time. There's things where we just, you know, we all know it's like to lose a day of 
You just get pulled out. You know, someone distracted you. You just became inefficient. It happens. You just, it happens. But Jesus was very deliberate and intentional in everything he did. We know there in the Gospel of Mark, when he's introduced to us, that we see in the beginning of every day, he, it's implied by that, that he made time to be at the Father. That he got up in the early in the morning in the dark, and he spent time with the Father, and he got the mind of the Father as he took on our humanity, deity and humanity, God and man, son of God, son of man. And as he went forward, he went forward with intention and clarity of who he was and what he was doing. So when Peter comes and hey, Jesus, everybody's here. You healed everybody last night. We want to do a healing crusade. And, you know, this morning with everyone that missed last night. And Jesus is like, no, for this reason I came. We need to keep moving on to the next village. So when Peter came and said, this is what we think you should be doing, Rabbi. He's like, no, this is what we're doing, disciple. And he stayed on point and true to what he was called to do. This is a great challenge in the human experience. And, of course, it's a great challenge in ministry. Because as a minister, you want to serve the Lord and you want to serve people. But like we've been saying in recent weeks, some ministries are just ineffective. And you can just spin your wheels over and over. And Jesus himself said, don't cast your pearls before swine. And Paul said, you reject the device of person after the first and second admonition. The Bible does give some indication that in Jesus' name, we're not called just to serve people endlessly who abuse us, take advantage of us, and don't grow in the Lord. Just so you know that for pastors and for everyday people in the body of Christ. Our life belongs to the Lord. Our time belongs to the Lord. And there are responsibilities every day God has for us from here to eternity. Now, responsibilities at 92, like my dad in, a, in memory care, might look a little different than me at 62, you know, serving as a pastor, or you at 32 or 22. But responsibilities for the disciple of Jesus Christ is those things that he's entrusted to us that he has for us to do. And these Levites had tremendous responsibilities. And again, they were, uh, these are key words I, I wrote down. They were appointed. They had a trusted thing. They were in charge of stuff. They had uh, things that they were assigned to do. And literally, they commuted. It says every once in a while, they left their village to go work there for seven days. That's like a fireman, right? Our good friend, Drain Sweetens, a fireman in Long Beach, and he's lived in Temecula for years, and he's home for three or four days, and then he's a fireman for three or four days. He commutes to L.A., Long Beach, and that's what he does, and he lives at the firehouse. He commutes. Some people at their jobs. I was talking with our good friend, former deacon Randy Crosco, the other day, and he's in Texas right now, in El Paso. He still works for Johnson & Johnson, and his job, yes, he goes to uh, Ciudad de Juarez. He goes to Juarez you know, one of the most violent places in the world, really, truly, with the cartels and all that. And Johnson & Johnson has a factory there. So he flies in El Paso. Him and his team stay in El Paso, and the van comes across the border from Juarez, shaded windows, no, no kidding, picks up the team. They go through the border in the express lane and go straight to the Johnson & Johnson place, research, development, gates close. They do their stuff, and they leave the same way. He commutes. Monday's the travel day, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, full work days across the border every day, Ciudad de Juarez, and then Friday, debriefing in the hotel, fly out in the afternoon. That's a commute. That's what these guys did. Randy loves the Lord. He's a pastor. He's a former deacon. That's what he's doing. Can you relate to that? That's what God's called him to do. That's how he provides for his wife. That's how he pays his mortgage. That's how he's allowed, that's how he's able to be in ministry. We support him when he went to Vietnam, Philippines, and Cambodia last year in an outreach to Asia, and he's going back again this summer. 
That's what he does. What do you do? What are your responsibilities? Do you have to be somewhere at a certain time? Are you like the gatekeepers? You got to get up and like, hey, it's your job. My wife for many years at Calvary Chapel Schools, the MCA office, and the junior high school there at 3800 South Fairview Avenue, a lot of people like Miss Judy, Maureen, and all these others, they had to be there at a certain time. But Jennifer was there with the key every morning. And we used to have a guy on our street with a motorcycle go by at 6.05, and that's when I knew my wife was up. And she was up. She was morning devotion, time with the Lord. 6.55, out the door. 7.15, opening that door. Someone has to open that door at 7.15 at MCA schools. Somebody has to be there and open that door. And my wife was the person that opened that door. This is what made Pastor Chuck so great, by the way. Because until he went into eternity at 86, Pastor Chuck essentially was always at his office at 8.45 every morning. And I learned after the fact, I didn't think much about it at the time, but now I look back in hindsight, it was a test for everybody. We were all like Gideon's men. And the guys that showed up at 8.45, they got advancements and they got raises. The guys that didn't, they complained and they moved on. Go figure, right? Isn't that how life is? And we've said this before, whatever you do, you can do it as unto the Lord, and you can find dignity and glory of the Lord in it. And you should be working toward your dream, by the way. Most people don't work toward their dream. Whatever your job is, you should be moving toward your dream and that great purpose God has put on your life. And if you're not working toward your dream and you're just going to work like 80% of the people to do a job that you don't care about, guess what you're doing? You're working for someone else's dream. That's what you're doing. You're working for someone else's dream. So spend time with the Lord and get your dreams and get your hustle on and work for you and your dreams that the Lord's given you. Otherwise, you're just working for, either working for your dream with the Lord or you're working for someone else's dream for man or the devil or the Lord as well. So you have to decide. Hey, these Levites had different attitudes when they showed up. And I'm sure there's certain guys who open up the East Gate on Monday, and they're just that guy. They're that guy at 645. Hey, Fred, Bob, how you doing? Sue, Jane. Those are all baby boomer names, by the way. How y'all folks? How you folks doing today? Good to see you in the house of the Lord. And someone else is like, I hope you have a good day. It's like Eeyore is your gatekeeper. I don't ever work, you know, like, you know, you want Tigger. <laughs> You're like, that's like, who are you? Who are you with what's entrusted to you? It's been proven that 30 seconds of being kind to someone can make their day. Be that 30 seconds that elevates them and encourages them. And when people act weird or respond inappropriately, maybe there's something going on you don't know. Maybe they're taking care of their elderly parents, and it's a a radical burden because they don't have the money to do so, and they still have to take care of them and change the diapers. You don't know what's going on in their life. Maybe their son's in rehab for the fifth time, and it's still not working. We don't know. So respond Don't react. Jesus responded. The apostles responded. People in the flesh react, and I'm trying to get past that in my 62nd year. See, I'm excited to live longer because there's so much more I know needs to be done in my life, in my character, in my person. And I intend to let the Lord do it. Because once it's done, it's done. You're your finished work of art, and you don't get a second chance. So show up on time, like the Levites. Commute if you have to. Open the gates, smile, be friendly, be positive and encouraging to the people around them. Make the place better. Make it shine. Shine it for the Lord. Be a blessing for everybody. And be consistent. You know, they say the compound effect is doing the small things, the smart choices consistently, every day over time, produces amazing results. That's my wife's life. 
That's some of you, just that consistency of faithfulness every day, every week, every month, every year. And it's the long game, and it's a beautiful thing. That's what I'm working on. I tend to get too, too high or low. I'm like an inconsistent quarterback. You know, if I'm going to throw five touchdowns or three interceptions, right? There's less of that. Let's go more for just, you know, game management and taking care of things and being faithful and diligent and, and just not just playing the long game. Jesus plays the long game. So let's, let's be faithful. And by the way, a final thought on this. Peter, in the book of Acts, I noticed something. When you talk about having to be somewhere at a certain time, Two great things that happened in his life happened when he was being somewhere at a certain time. Acts chapter 3, he's going to the temple at the, third, at the ninth hour on schedule when he sees the lame man and has the faith to heal that, that lame man. He was going to a certain place at the certain time that he did probably every day as a faithful Hebrew. At that time, the hour of prayer. And at that time is when he had the faith and the vision to see that this was the man God was going to heal. Then... In the revelation of the gospel to the Gentiles, the nations, it says in the noon hour, the time of prayer, he was on the rooftop fasting at Simon the Tanner's house when the Lord Jesus appeared to him and gave him the vision for the nations and the house of Cornelius. So this great miracle and this great vision both came when he was doing something consistently at the same time that he did as a Hebrew. The hour of prayer, both times, it's identified for us. And by the way, when Paul the Apostle made his decisions in his life, he built it around the Jewish calendar. I'm going to be here by the festival, I'm going to be in Jerusalem by that thing, and there by that thing. It's good to have that order and design. Not to be owned by it, but just to know it and be aware of it. And so I just really appreciate these Levites, man. They just, it's almost like the seven dwarves or something, yeah? This off to work we go. Hi-ho, you know, like that's again a baby boomer thing, but, you know, off you go. Like, we're meant to find identity and purpose and meaning and joy and value in our job. And in Jesus' name, we should. And if we follow Christ and we don't, then we need to take a long, hard look in the mirror and ask ourselves, why not? For real. We're all gatekeeper Levites. So embrace the responsibility, be faithful with it, and shine for the Lord. Verse 28. Now, some of them were in charge of the serving vessels, for they brought them in and took them out by count. Some of them were appointed over the furnishings and over the implements, all the implements of the sanctuary, and over the fine flour and the wine and the oil and incense and spices. Yeah, they got inventory. Sounds like Albertsons or something, right? Whole Foods. I mean, there's inventory. Verse 30. And some of the sons of the priests made ointments of the spices. Mattathiah of the Levites, the firstborn of Shalom the Korathite, had the trusted office over the things that were baked in the pans. And some of their brethren of the sons of the Korathites were in charge of preparing the showbread for every Sabbath. So it's like a bakery. They made the bread and they set it before the Lord in the, in the holy place, the showbread. It was all part of the worship because Jesus is the bread of life and it was all pointing to Jesus being the bread of life. These are the singers, verse 33, the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites who lodged in the chambers and were free from other duties. For they were employed in that work day and night. Isn't that beautiful? You know, these worship leaders only did one thing. They didn't bake the bread. They didn't keep track of the spices. They didn't put the fresh produce out for the day. They did one thing. They worked on their singing. They became excellent at singing. They perfected their skill, and they maintained that skill, and hopefully they did things to advance that skill, because you can always get better. Even when you're getting older, WG, 
which most of you are. Well, we all are, but some are getting a little more older than others. You can always get better. It's just whatever you decide you want to do. You just you decide what you want to do. We can choose to get better. We can be a better version. We can be more skilled than we ever were. I intend to be the best speaker I've ever been and best communicator I've ever been when I'm 80 years of age. Because that's the one thing I do really well is communicate. And I feel like the ceiling is so much higher for me to go as a speaker and a writer. I really do. So I might be retired as a pastor when I'm 80, but I'm not going to be retired from speaking and writing and communicating the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and the hope that we should all have through faith in him. I have a vision for my life from here to eternity. I'll be speaking and writing. It might be a little eclectic when I'm in my 90s, but I'll still be, you know, if all I got is Jesus, then even when it's coming out backwards or upside down and sideways, it's still Jesus. That's what I'm aiming for. What are you aiming for? Some of the things it says here, again, look at these words. They counted the stuff. Inventory, metrics, you got to know the the math. (laughs) Some jobs require that you know the numbers. They counted. They did literally warehouse inventory. There is an actual number, and what we say about numbers is this. What you know about your numbers, your metrics, that's your equity. What you don't know, that's your liability, especially if you have business. You need to know. When I, became, when I went out to start the first church in Virginia Beach, Gaylord Tohill, who's now in glory, he said to me, Joey, two things, because he was the associate pastor. He said, you need to know where every penny goes, and you need to make sure you should be spending if you spend it. Isn't that good counsel? And wouldn't you know, I didn't know where every penny went. I entrusted someone else to do it, and things got bad, and that, that person did some bad things. They left, caused division. It took years to clean up the mess they left behind, including with the IRS. If I just kept track of every penny, the history of this church, 18 years, we got a record of every penny, which means I learned a lesson, and that's what we want to do. Because there's always been a time we didn't keep track of every penny or know the count. But metrics is the numbers. And you need to know your metrics in most businesses and generally in life, your personal finances, because that's your equity. That's what you know. Knowledge, understanding, wisdom. You know what you have. You know what it means. And you know what you can or cannot do. That's the metrics are important. So they had metrics and they had, they had to know their metrics. They had to know. It was a trusted office, and they were, you know, they were, the ba- they were in charge of bread. You ever go to Whole Foods and get the fresh bread? So, uh, Whole Foods, I get the fresh bread. I'm like, oh, can you cut this fresh sourdough for me? And it's just like, almost like, oh, it smells so good. That's what they did. They were bakers. Some of these guys were bakers. And if you're going to be a baker for the Lord, be a really good one. And take pride in it. One thought about this, this singer, these singers here, they were free from all of their duties. It brings us to that one thing. You know, it's been said in the business world, most of us do about 20 things a day related to our job, but only three really matter, and one's more important than the other two. Most of us in our job, and some of you have jobs, that require, some of you retired, but listen, studies show most of us do about 20 things every day with our job. Three really matter, and one is most important of the three. And the sooner you younger people listen to me carefully, the sooner you can figure out what the three are good for you. Because you can immediately eliminate the things that aren't that important. You're paid really for your number one and number two and number three, not four through 20. What's really making you money in the world is shining for the Lord with one 
two, and three, but specifically one. Figure out that one thing. Me, it's speaking. I do three things in this church primarily. I teach, I tend, and I administrate. But the one thing I can do when I'm 80 is still teach. And I can tend a little bit, but I'm not going to tend to flock when I'm 80. Except my wife and our kids and grandkids. And even then, I'm more like patriarch. You know what I'm saying? But I'm not going to administrate. I'm not going to administrate things. I'm going to delegate all that between 75 and 80 for sure. The wealth would put it in capable hands. The one thing I do really well, and I've done really well my whole life, is communicate. And that's the one thing. Right now, that's the main thing is I'm ready to teach you. Every day I wake up, the number one thing in my world right now is be prepared to teach you the word of God in its context with the power of the Holy Spirit, with Jesus and the gospel over it. From all these names, that's my one thing. Every day. Now, I'll help you manage your life because time management is huge. Your responsibilities are A, B, C, D, and E. A is you must do. I have three to four A's at the start of every day. I have six to nine in the morning, nine to noon, noon to three, three to six, six to nine. But I've got four A's every day, and I'm working on a book. So the book's one of those A's every day because that's how you accomplish something. You take a step forward every day with your goal, and you'll accomplish your goal. So you have your A's. The things you must do when you go to work. This is what you have to do. These, you must do. This is your A. I, some of you might have two A's, three A's. I, sometimes I get ambitious. I get five. But like all Americans, I overestimate what I can do in one day, but I underestimate what I can do in a year. But I am after it. Your A's guide your day. It's your core values. Your A's are moving around your one thing. So your four A's, three A's, that's your one thing dictates those A's. My job is to teach. So no matter what I do, the first thing I'm looking at every day is to study the word for what I'm teaching. That's my A. Administration on Monday, that's an A. I got to do bank deposits, do the finances, get them ready for Donna, come and do bookkeeping, that's an A. Today, if I visited my dad, it's a B. I should do it, but it's not on a Tuesday, it's not the thing. Tomorrow, dad's an A. On a Wednesday, dad goes to the top of the list. A is what you should do. B is what, A is what you have to do. B is what you should do, or you, you would hope to do. But you never usurp an A for a B. That way you don't get lost. C is what you could do, like me doing a dance workout. You know how many times I have dance practice written down? I never get to it. It's there between three and six. And as I roll a couple hours back, there's no dancing. Walk the dog and do hopscotch, you know? Figure it out. I don't have time for it. You never usurp an A for a B, and you never usurp a B for a C. And after a while, you realize C is not that important. D is delegate, and E is exterminated. Because after a while, like, why am I carrying an E? I don't have time for it. You have 20 things most of you do, three really count, and one's the most important. And the sooner you can figure out, the better. That's your core value. That's your key purpose in life. And listen, Jesus had a key purpose in life. Because it says he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. And for this purpose, he came to die on the cross for our sins. Of all he did, the primary purpose of Christ was to come as the Savior of the world and die on the cross. See, the liberals and the people who reject his blood and his atonement for us, they accept his teachings and the soft sell Jesus. And the healing miracle of Jesus, in some cases, although the atheists might reject him on that. Listen, yeah, we believe that he is the greatest teacher of all time. We believe he showed his authority over every realm of man. And the Gospels tell us that. But more than anything else, he is the Savior of the world. He came to die on the cross. And everything he did was moving in that direction. And that's that. That was the main thing. Paul the Apostle said to the Romans in chapter 15, I make it my aim. My primary purpose, I make it my aim to preach the gospel where it has not yet been preached, lest I build on another man's foundation. Paul's 
core value of his entire life. Every decision Paul made was based upon, I preach the gospel where it's not been preached. Jesus, everything I do is moving toward the cross. You, everything you do is moving toward what? See, everything I'm doing in my life ultimately is moving toward getting better at communicating the gospel and the promises of God. That's what I'm working on in verbal and written form, large group, small group, whatever. Because I know I can keep getting better at this with the anointing of the Lord and my effort to fill the water pot so he can turn it to wine. And so can you, whatever it is. They did one thing, these singers, that's all they did was sing. And they did it really good. And by the way, we know in most tech jobs, what you know now is irrelevant in two years. You have to do personal education. You need to make time to get better at your trade. You look at Haley, what she's doing with real estate purchases, flipping, and all that kind of stuff. Everything's changing. When you graduated three years ago with your technology, it is already going to be obsolete within a year by those that are coming behind you in 2024. Most of our information is outdated within five years, really two years, and a lot of it within five, almost all of it. Where's Toys R Us? Where's Kmart? Where's Blockbuster? How about this one, Warehouse Records? Where are they? You see, everything's moving. And it's really important as we serve the Lord and we fulfill our calling in the Lord that we got our hustle on and we're not just chasing our tail, but we're intentional and absolute in what we're doing. And these singers, they woke up, what's my role in life? Your role is to sing and sing really good. When Jack was here two weeks ago, people commented how much better his voice sounded. He told me, I've been working on my voice and holding my keys. And we all benefited from it. Right? That's us. Know you're one, you're two and three, and trying to identify those things don't matter. Because ultimately, you're not getting paid for four through 20, really. If you want to increase your value, you know what your one is and back it up with your two and your three. And then let it shine for the Lord. Verse 35. Now we get the rest of King Saul and wrap up the chapter. Jaliel, the father of Gibeon, whose wife's name was Maka, dwelt in Gibeon. His firstborn son was Abdon, and then Zer, Kish, Baal, Ner, Nadad, Yador, Ahio, Zechariah, Mikloth, and Mikloth begot Shimeim, and they also dwelt alongside their relatives in Jerusalem with their brethren. Ner begot Kish, Kish begot Saul, so this is repetitive of what we already saw. Kish begot Saul, Saul begot Jonathan, Malkishua, Abinadab, and Eshbaal. The sons of Jonathan were Mir, Miriab, Baal, Miriab Baal begot Micah. The sons of Micah were Pithon, Melech, Teheria, and Ahaz. And Ahaz begot Jarah. Jarah begot Emeleth, Asmaveth, and Zimri. Zimri begot Moza. Moza begot Binia, Rephaiah, his son, Alisai, his son, and Azel's son. Azel had six sons whose names were these Azakaram, Bokaru, Ishmael, Shariah, Obadiah, and Hanan. These were the sons of Aziel. And as we wrap up chapter 9 tonight, this concludes a major portion of the book because now we're going to really be shifting. We'll get Saul's demise and the rise of David next week. So we've kind of cleared those nine chapters of Chronicles. Congratulations, WG. We did it together. We found plenty of things to think about and apply to our lives. Be encouraged and be built up and on track with the Lord.